Good morning. It's good to see all of you. If you have a Bible, grab it and make your way to Luke chapter 2. If you are going to be using one of the Bibles around you, um, that's going to be on page 556. If you're a guest with us, I promise we don't do Christmas every single Sunday. We are almost through. Uh, we are making our way through the gospel of Luke in its entirety. And, um, and we are going to finish up kind of the infancy uh, of Jesus today and move into um, chapter 3. Uh, or the, more than likely next week. But almost 11 years ago, later on this, uh, in, in the month of April, 11 years ago, um, Sarah and I became parents for the very first time. And like most parents, probably, um, we had a little bit of a period of time where you just freak out because you don't know what you're doing. It's your first child. You go crazy uh, as it relates to safety and providing for them and all of those sorts of things, and so as a dad, you know, you go and you read the instruction manual on putting the, the car base in, in your car to clip the thing in, and so, I mean, I'm in there with a foot on it, pulling, back bent, just making that thing one, I mean, there's no wiggle, that thing is one with the car, we, uh, you know, Haley's born, and we start driving home from Northside Hospital on the north side of Atlanta, and, uh, and we're driving home, and I'm doing 45 on 285, which was probably one of the most dangerous things I could have done, because people in Atlanta think they're all NASCAR drivers, because they're used to being in gridlock so much, so when it opens up, man, they are hauling, and so I'm driving 45, people are honking at me, and I'm just like, you know, I got a baby in the car, get home, and start setting things up, and, um, you know, I want everything, I mean, I'm freaking out, I want everything to be so perfect for her, I go and buy a thermometer to put in every single room to make sure that there's right airflow. And the t- I mean, I just, I'm a first-time dad. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm scared to death that I'm going to mess something up. She's going to die. It's going to be my fault. I'm going to live with that guilt. That's, that's the way, you know, I, I, I was rolling in all of that. It, but the motivation behind all of that was, was that I, I, I had a love for this child that I had no idea could even exist. I, you know, I mean, my parents had always told me, and I loved my parents, but then when I had one of my own, I just didn't understand that, and I wanted to provide for her, and I wanted to do everything that I could do to make sure, you know, that she had all that she needed. And so that it was good, and that was right, and that was important. But far more important than that is the spiritual side of things. And so on, on a spiritual side, you know, we, we, want it, we need to, as parents, pray for our kids, like even before they're conceived. And then while they're in the womb and then for the rest of their lives and talk to them and and read them scripture and and sing to them even when they're in the womb. And then when they're born and they get to a place where they're healthy enough and that this took a little longer for uh, one of our kids than the other. Then we bring them into the fellowship of the church and we come and we stand before the church and we publicly dedicate ourselves to as much as it depends on us to raise our child to come to faith in Christ, right? to, to love Jesus, to know Jesus, to make much of Jesus. In so much as it depends on us, we seek to do those things. And we also prayerfully surrender them to God, that he would do great things in their lives, specifically in saving them and drawing them to himself. And Mary and Joseph did these, this is, they, they did this for their kids, right? In, in particular, for Jesus here, they're first. 
They were godly parents. And they wanted to honor God and they wanted God's best for their son. So they performed all the details as it pertains to childbirth and cleansing and presentation and circumcision in accordance with God's laws. And, and so that's kind of the setting that we find ourselves in this morning as we're going to get into the later part of chapter 2. All of Jesus has been born, all right, and they are going to the temple to dedicate him, to present him. All right? And so that's kind of the setting. But when they get there, some crazy things break loose with some crazy characters. And I want us to see that story. But, but through all of that, through this lens and through what Luke is doing, he's continuing to show us, even through that, continuing to paint the picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. Like the first two chapters of the book of Luke just revolve really around four um, Christmas carols or four hymns. All right, the first is uh, the Magnificat of Mary, where, where she is sent, and all of them have to do with who Jesus is and what he's come to do before Jesus ever shows up and utters a word in Luke's gospel. And all these hymns and all these Christmas carols are to show us, start telling us who he is. And so in the Magnificat of Mary, she sings of how her soul magnifies the Lord because he's done great things for her. That he's shown mercy to his people. And then you get the song of Zechariah the, called the Benedictus. Where he's, you know, he said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel because he's visited and he's redeemed his people. He's sending the Savior. He's fulfilling the covenants that he made to Abraham and that he made to David. And then as Lee read just a, a minute ago, you've got the, the angels who, who come and, and, and they you know, the heavenly chorus, and they sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. And before they ever even sing that, they declare who Jesus is. This is the Christ. This is the Savior, the descendant of David, the one who's been promised to come. And then the fourth song that we have in these first two chapters of Luke, the one that is before us today, is the song of Simeon. It's known Throughout history as the nunc dimittis. It's the Latin for how that phrase is rendered in the Vulgate. And it's now nunc dimittis. I can depart in peace. And so we're going to make our way through that this morning. And in that I think there are five truths. That Luke kind of distills for us about who Jesus is. And what he's come to do that I want us to kind of glean from this text. All right, and so we're, we're, we're going to glean and we're going to exegete that here in a minute. But first, I want us to just kind of get the idea of the story in general. So let's read that together. All right, Luke chapter 2, we'll pick it up in verse 21. And at the end of the eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time had come, for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. That's Exodus 13. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so what's going on right here, we'll keep reading, but just kind of give you an idea. There's two Old Testament ceremonies that are being fulfilled here. One has to do with being declared ritually unclean after the birth of the child. There's 
40 days where you're ritually unclean, basically six weeks. That's a basic recovery period after uh, birth. And then the other one has to deal with consecrating the firstborn as holy to the Lord. And, and normally, like typically what happens according to Leviticus 12 is you're to bring a lamb. But if you're too poor to be able to afford a lamb, then you can bring two turtle doves. And if you're too poor to be able to afford two turtle doves, then you bring two pigeons. They bring two pigeons. And so this is just further showing us the humility of Jesus in the incarnation that not only did he leave the glory of heaven and come and become incarnate in this world as a human, but he became incarnate in this world as a human in an impoverished family who then grew up to be a homeless man. That's who we worship. All right, let's keep going. Verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So there's the Nunc Dimittis. There's the song. And we'll go through that here in a minute. We'll unpack that in a minute. But I want let's flesh this story out. I just read it to you, but look at it. See it. Understand what's going on here. Right, you've got Simeon, all right, verse 25. And Simeon is, is going to be a guy that we're going to look at and we're going to say Simeon's a little bit odd. Okay, Simeon is a, a little bit odd. And, and here's why. Here, he, here's a guy, all right, there's been 400 years with silence from God. Not a word, not a prophet, not anything. And then here's a guy who starts running around telling everybody, hey, God told me that I'm not going to die until I see the Messiah. All right. So this is going to be the guy that if we meet, we're going to be like, OK. Right. Sarah, get in the car. Right. We'll see you. We got to go. You know, that, that's going to be that guy. All right. So here come Mary and Joseph bringing their baby to the temple. They don't know about this guy. And here he comes running up, snatches the baby out of their arms and starts running around saying, now I can die. Now I can die. Now I can die. Right. That's freaky. You try that here, you're getting taken out, right? Baby dedication Sunday, when you run down here, grab a baby, now I can die, you're getting tased. But that's what happened. Okay, that's the story. And so you've got this Simeon guy, he's righteous, he's devout, he's been told, you're not going to die until you see the Messiah. And then Jesus shows up and he goes nuts because like, he's here. This is, this is the one. So verse 33, keep reading, finish it. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. 
She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. So this is either she's 84 years old or she's been a widow for 84 years old, putting her probably over 100 years of age. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And so again, Luke is telling us, all right, telling us all this because it happened. All right. And in the midst of that, he's showing us in this section five major truths about who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. And the first one I want us to talk about this morning is this, that Jesus is the Christ. He's the consolation of Israel. He's the redemption of Jerusalem. All right, so, so go back at verse 25. I want everybody to grab their Bible. Look at this. Make sure I'm not making any of this up. Look at it. Verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem. His name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the... All right, he's waiting for what? For the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So we've got the consolation of Israel. We've got the Lord's Christ right there. And then you flip down to verse 38, and Anna is waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So, so Jesus, this is who Jesus is. He is the Christ. He is the consolation of Israel. He is the redemption of of Jerusalem. This is who he is. He's the long-awaited, promised Messiah of the Old Testament that would bring salvation and that would bring comfort to those who are his. Right? That's what the consolation of Israel is all about. Salvation and comfort coming to those who are Christ. That's what the redemption of, Jeru- of Jerusalem is all about. Salvation and comfort coming to those who are Christ. It's not about a physical, geographical place. It's about a person named Jesus. He's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. All the Old Testament points forward to him. And upon seeing him, Simeon says, that's the one. He's here. The consolation of Israel. The Lord's Christ. Anna says, the redemption of Jerusalem. He's here. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon recognizes this is him. Salvation has come. That that this baby was and is God's salvation. Notice, he does not say that he is part of God's salvation. He says that he is God say he's seen, I have seen your salvation, right? That Christ is totally sufficient. He's all we need. It's not some idea of Jesus plus something else. Like the consolation of Israel, the redemption of Jerusalem, our salvation, our hope. It's not Jesus plus something. It's Jesus, period. It's Jesus plus nothing. He's our hope. He's our salvation. And everybody in here is going to nod their head along in agreement. Because we're in church. It's what you do. No one's honest in here. We might be found out. 
but we do need to check ourselves. We do need to check ourselves because very often, people who claim the name of Christ actually live with some level of idolatry in their life. Where they actually place their hope and their joy in Jesus plus something, not just Jesus alone, but Jesus plus some circumstantial thing in their life. So Sarah and I, for example, to show you my idolatry, Sarah and I um, are in this process of trying to sell our home and buy a home, all right? Move from Rutherford County into Williamson County so we can get the services that we need for Eden. And so we're in that process, and it is a headache, but, and it's, but here's the idolatry. We found a house. We liked the house. We made an offer on the house. We went back and forth a few times, called time out for a minute, and then said, let's just do it. Let's get this house. Made an offer, but they had already accepted an offer. So we're out. It's gone. Can't do anything about it. It's over. All right? And there's a proper place for disappointment in our lives as humans. All right? We, we, we are humans. And I get God's sovereignty, all right, he's going to, I get all that, I understand that. But I was down yesterday. I was, I was down yesterday, okay, just down. Sarah was as well. And then last night I'm reviewing all this, and I'm talking, you know, sitting there, and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to talk to people about having their hope in Jesus plus something else, and they just need to have it in Jesus only, and it was like, whop, I am that man. I am the Jesus plus guy. I am the idolater. I have my hope. Jesus plus that house, my life would be great. No, 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 no. Jesus, my life would be great. And so it may not be a house for you. It may be Jesus, maybe your hope, maybe your joy is Jesus plus how your spouse treats you. That's your hope. That's your joy. That would make you satisfied. Maybe it's Jesus plus your, your, how your job's going. Maybe it's Jesus plus, and I should say this one in the fall, how your football team's doing. Maybe it's Jesus plus a politician or a political party. That's your hope. That's your, that's your joy. Maybe it's Jesus plus your performance. Jesus plus what people think about you. That's where your hope and your joy is. Maybe it's Jesus plus the old red, white, and blue. Maybe it's Jesus plus a certain educational form for your children. That's where your hope is. It's not in Jesus alone. It's in Jesus plus these things. In Philippians 3, Paul calls that line of reasoning literally crap. Maybe stronger than that. You can look it up. Our hope, our comfort, our treasure, our joy, is in Jesus alone. Not in Jesus plus things. He is the consolation of Israel. Comfort, comfort. That's what the word is. He is the Lord's Christ. He is the redemption of Jerusalem. He is salvation. Not part of, but completely it. And so Simeon sees him. He gets it. And now he's ready to depart in peace. He's been waiting for this. And now he's there. Like He sees Jesus, he meets Jesus, and the details of his life's resume become irrelevant. He's met Jesus. 
there was no Jesus plus for our boy Simeon here. But somebody's like, hey, but that's easy for him. He saw Jesus. He did not see Jesus' life. He did not see Jesus' death. He did not see Jesus' resurrection. He did not see Jesus' ascension. He did not see the gospel spread all over the Mediterranean, all the way to Rome. He has not seen 2,000 years of church history where the gospel has invaded every country on the planet, every continent. He has not seen all of that. All he saw was a baby sucking its thumb. And he had faith that God will fulfill continue to fulfill his promises as he had already done in his life. Simeon probably had to have more faith than we do to believe this happened. But we're called to live by faith. Like Simeon. That God will fulfill his promises. And one more thing I want to touch on before we leave this section right here. Like, there's a promise that is specific to Simeon here, right? God did not promise all of us you're going to see the Messiah before you die. That was a promise that was specific for Simeon. But there is an underlying principle there that I think we can pick up on. It is only when you have seen Christ that you are ready to die. It's only when you've seen his perfect life in the place of your imperfect life, his substitutionary atoning death on the cross as a payment for your sin, you know, paying the full penalty of God's wrath against you. It's only when you've seen that, when you've seen his resurrection as a guarantee of all of this, and he's beaten sin, he's beaten death, it's only when you've seen Christ that you're prepared to die. And until you do, whether you're young or old, you're not prepared to die. And so number one, Jesus, the point here, Jesus is the Christ. He is the consolation of Israel. He is the redemption of Jerusalem. All right? That's the first thing we see about Jesus in this text. The second thing that I think we see here is that Jesus came to save Gentiles and Jews. All right? Number two, Jesus came to save Gentiles and Jews. Look at verse 29. This is the song again. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. I'm going to read it again. That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And so Jesus came to save Gentiles and Jews. Like like salvation going out to, to you and me as Gentiles was not some sort of plan B for God. Okay? It's not like plan A was for him to work exclusively through Israel. That didn't go so well, so God's got to go to a backup plan and go to plan B. Look right at me. God has no plan B because God needs no plan B. What he wants to do, he does. Nothing can stay his hand. He's sovereign. He's going to work it. So this has always been God's plan before the foundations of the earth, that the gospel would come for Gentiles and Jews both. I mean, Revelation 5. Who's going to be gathered around the throne? There's going to be like a group of Jews over here and a group of other folks over here? No, no, no. There's going to be people, God's people from every tribe, tongue, nation, language, gathered around the throne in praise and giving praise and glory to the Lamb who was slain and who was risen. 
and the dividing wall of hostility, right, has been torn down. And now there's, you know, one man's been made out of the two when there's one, uh, one people of God, one church, one faith, one baptism, one Lord, all of this is Ephesians 4. And so Christ, as a light to the Gentiles, is the full realization of Israel's glory. That's what the consolation, that's what the redemption of Israel and Jerusalem's all about. He's here. He's come. He's brought salvation for all who will believe. I mean, Isaiah 49.6 is just kind of what he's getting at here. He's kind of referencing Isaiah 49.6. Listen to this. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Like, that's too light a thing, God says. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Jesus came to save Gentiles and Jews. It's not a plan A and a plan B. It's not varsity and then JV. Before the foundations of the earth, this has been his plan. So number one, Jesus is the Christ. He is the consolation of Israel. He is the redemption of Jerusalem. Number two, he came to save Jews and Gentiles. Number three, Jesus is the great divide. All right, number three, Jesus is the great divide. Look at verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And the sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What Simeon is saying right here is that this boy, this child, will grow up to be a man who is the center of extreme controversy, of extreme conflict, division, strife, and hostility. He will be the fulcrum upon which history hinges. And, and this, we, we've already seen this play out just on a practical level. How do we define our years? We've got B.C., before Christ, and then we've got Anno Domini, in the year of, right? So it's 2016, in the year of our Lord, 2016. So history is divided over him. And if you don't think, like, Christ is divisive in nature, bring him up at Thanksgiving when the extended family comes over. When I speak with, you know, folks I meet or friends who are of the Jewish faith or the Islamic faith or are Jehovah's Witnesses or are Mormons, and we talk about Jesus, we disagree. We believe one thing, they believe another thing. Like Jesus is a divider on this. He's the great divide in this. We disagree. And as believers, we're called to do so in humility and love, but there's still going to be a dividing point. Doesn't mean we've got to be all snotty about it and like a jerk, but there's a, there is going to be a division. And it will always be that way till Jesus returns and they realize they were wrong. But until then, Jesus will be a point of unity for those who love him, and it'll be a point of disunity for those who don't. 
And so Simeon's letting Mary and, and Joseph know that, yes, your boy is going to be extraordinary. He's the son of God. He's the Christ. He's the consolation of Israel. He's the redemption of Jerusalem. He is salvation for the Jew and the Gentile. But it's going to be a hard road. He's going to be despised. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be attacked. He's going to be slandered. And Mary, it's going to get so bad that it's going to feel like a sword has been jabbed through your own soul. Because what's she going to do? She's going to watch her son take the cat of take the take the take the the whip of cattails thirty nine times, be beaten to a bloodied pulp, and then hung on a Roman cross, which is both an execution and torture device. You're going to watch your child, for those of you who are parents. You, you, you're going to watch your child do that. But the point here that Simeon, there's no neutrality. There is no position of neutrality when it comes to Jesus. Ultimately, we are either like for Jesus or we are against Jesus. And if we are against Jesus, then we will fall down to physical death, spiritual death, and hell. And so Jesus is, is, is going to cause division. He's going to be opposed. He's going to be attacked. He's going to be slandered. He's going to be spoken against. And as followers of him, we will as well. I mean, Jesus says this in John chapter 15. He tells us, hey, I was hated, so you're going to be hated. I was persecuted, so you're going to be persecuted. And so on some level, and listen, increasingly so as the years go by, we will face hostility, objections, <clears throat> persecution. But here, I want you to hear this. While that may be a bad thing for us personally, that may be a good thing for the gospel. Because cultural Bible Belt Christianity will die Good riddance, the muddiness of that, where you don't know, like, well, I grew up in church. Well, do you believe in Jesus? Well, I was baptized. Do you believe in Jesus? Have you trusted in him? Well, I raised my hand once. Like, that's going to die. That's going to cease to exist. And the light shines brightest in the midst of darkness. So while it may be hard for us personally, it may be really, really, really good for the gospel. Think about this. When did the church, when did the gospel spread the fastest in all of human history? First century, what was that culture like? Intense persecution. Every single, every single apostle besides John died of an execution. And John, he was just boiled in water, somehow, to, somehow survived that, and then sent to the island of Patmos in exile. Maybe bad for us, maybe good for the gospel. We live in light of eternity. Not a realized, over-realized eschatology in this life. Our hope is there, not here. And so Jesus is the Christ. And again, this divisiveness that's going to happen here, listen, we do not, I tell people this all the time, we don't seek that. We don't go like hide away from people. We've been called to take the gospel to the nations, to our neighbors. So we don't hide away or anything like that, but we also don't seek division for division's sake. Like it's going to happen, but we don't seek it out. I want, here's what I tell people all the time, the gospel and Jesus needs to be what is the offense. 
not our actions, not us. Let Jesus be the offense. Let the gospel be the offense. Because ultimately, every person has to make a choice about Jesus. Either he is who he said he is, or he's not. Either he is the Son of God, the God incarnate, second person of the Trinity, who has you know, come into the flesh, has lived a perfect life in the place of our imperfect one, died on the cross as a penalty for our sin, rose again in victory over sin and death, has ascended to the right hand of God, is interceding for his people now, and will come again someday to judge, the, 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 to judge all people. Either that's going to happen, either that's who he is, or that's not who he is. And your decision on that will decide whether you fall or whether you rise to eternal life. Fall to eternal death or rise to eternal life. That's what Simeon is saying here. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And the sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And so Jesus is the Christ. He is the consolation of Israel. He is the redemption of Jerusalem. He came to save Jews and Gentiles, to redeem us back to God. And as he does that, note this. Note this, number four. He uses all kinds of people. He uses all kinds of people. Look at verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years. She's old having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, so she was married for seven years before her husband died, and then as a widow until she was 84. All right, So she's either 84 in age, or she's been a widow for 84 years. Add the seven, all right, and she was probably 13 when she got married. That makes it an even 20, so she may be 104 years old. She's extremely, even if she's 84, that's extremely old in this, in the, in this culture. All right, and she's going to be a little bit odd, kind of like Simeon. She did not depart from the temple. All right, so one guy described her as that charismatic with a tambourine who lives in the church balcony. She never leaves. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And so again, she, she's probably a little bit odd but she's being used of God. Because he uses all kinds of people, often the ones that we least would expect. And this is something we've already seen kind of play out in these last two chapters. Like we've already seen God use all kinds of different people. He's used people in a rural setting. He's used people in a city setting. He's used males. He's used females. He's, young, he's used a very, very young, uh, you know, engaged couple. He's used an elderly couple, Zechariah and, and Elizabeth. And here he's using a pair of senior citizen saints. And so the point of all this is that God uses all kinds of people. All kinds of people. Outcasts of society, young, old, all kinds of people. All kinds. And I think there's an important point here that, we, that Luke's driving home like, Twice already, we've seen him hammer home Zechariah, 
and Elizabeth were really, really, really old. Anna is really, really, really old. And I think there's a point that Luke is trying to drive home here that, for, that, that sometimes our most productive years in spiritual service to God come after our perhaps most productive years in earthly toil. Okay? And so, it's about to get uncomfortable. I may get an email over this, but I love you enough to tell you the truth. The idea of retirement as sending yourself off into pasture to pursue a decade or two of leisure is nowhere found in the Bible. Okay, now I'm not saying don't retire. I'm looking forward to it. Like 30 years from now, probably about 67, I'm going to retire. But the idea of just personal leisure, all right, that that's what you live for, you've worked hard, now you just sit around and, and, and live a life of leisure, that's not found in Scripture. All right, again, I'm looking forward to it, but that doesn't mean I just sit down and I just, you know, chill till I die. It means I now have an opportunity to serve the Lord and serve my kids and serve my friends and serve my family and serve my neighbors and serve my church in a way that I never had before. That's how we're to use our retirement. I mean, just think about this from God's perspective, okay? He's looking down on the world here. All right, and, and, and understand that, like, this idea of retirement, this is a American modern phenomenon. This is a, has not existed in the history of the world. It's a modern American phenomenon, the way we think of retirement as putting out to pasture and leisure. But think about it from the perspective of God for, for, for a minute. I read a book called Don't Waste Your Life. I put it in your resources. Totally opened my eyes up to a lot of, it, a lot of this. But think about this. In the, God's looking at this, and you have the affluence of America. And you've got people stopping work around 65 years old, very healthy people, with 10 to 20 years left of life, with the most, fin- like the most financially prosperous they've ever been in their life, kids are out of the home, all these sorts of things, who then sometimes spend two decades golfing, collecting shells, or antiquing their way into the presence of Jesus. When there are thousands of people in other countries dying of diarrhea. That sounds funny, but you give them Pepto and some cheap medicines and they can be saved. And we're going to worry about the shells we're collecting. When there's 6,000 unreached people groups and we're going to worry about a life of pure leisure. That's what I'm pursuing. And then I'll go to leisure forever in heaven as well. Retirement is a great thing. It is a great thing. But it's, it's not so much stopping, it's a career change. And you move from one thing to now a position of serving, again, your Lord and your family and your friends and your neighbors and your church in ways that you never could because now you've got time. Now you've got finances like you've never had. The kids are out of the house. And so I'm looking forward to it. I am looking forward to it. I've got a long ways to go. I'm 30 years. If the Lord tarries that long. But it's not a, 
it's not just it's not primarily about you. It's primarily about how you can serve the Lord in new ways. And in particular, in Luke one and two, he seems to be hammering home these senior citizens who are now serving the Lord in a brand new way, with more energy and more vitality and more life than they have ever done so, and they're blessed because of it. All right. So let's let's finish this up. Number one, Jesus came to save Jews and or. Jesus is the Christ, the consolation of Israel, the redemption of Jerusalem. Jesus came to save Jews and Gentiles. Jesus is the great uh, divide. God, uh, Jesus uses all kinds of people in his service. And then number five, Jesus produces unending marveling in his people. He produces unending marveling in his people. We'll back at verse 33. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. Like, this is what happens when you see Jesus. He produces marveling. Like, people marveled at his, at his birth. People are marveling at his presentation in the temple here. People marveled in Matthew eight twenty seven, And then the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Matthew nine thirty three. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. Matthew fifteen thirty one. so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Matthew 21, 20, when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? Luke 9, 43, when the disciples witnessed the transfiguration, they are astonished at the glory of God, and they marvel over Jesus. Luke 24, 12, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. John 5, 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show them so that you may marvel. That's the Christian life. We marvel, all right? It's a never-ending marveling at Jesus, a never-ending continual upward spiral of marveling over Christ that you never get over. Of marvel over this, this baby here, the Son of God, who upholds the universe by the word of His power, now incarnate, fully God, fully human, come to rescue treacherous sinners like me and you through His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection, and awakening us out of death, bringing us to life such that all who believe might be forgiven, might have life, might have um, be saved, might be delivered. And so this morning as we leave, let us go marveling over the fact that Jesus is the Christ who was to come. He is the consolation of Israel. He is the redemption of Jerusalem. That he came to save Jews and Gentiles. That history is, he is the divider. That he uses all kinds of people in his service. And he produces in us marveling over who he is that fills us with awe and wonder and joy. And as we prepare to approach the Lord's table, let's take time in our minds 
to marvel together once again over the grace and mercy that's been shown us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, when we think about who Christ is and all that he's come to do, I mean, you can't wrap it up in a... It is overwhelming. And that... That he would come and he would give his life He would give his, lay down his perfect, sinless life for me. We, this, just this week, has been wrecked with sin. Can't give an answer to that. Can't explain that. Can't sum that up. We praise you for your provision for us. We thank you for your grace, your unmerited mercy upon us. And as we prepare to receive this, may we marvel at the wonder of the cross. In Christ's name, amen. As these men pass this out, remember,